yes, of course, you are racist, but you can choose to minimize the harm that your racism and white supremacy is causing to other people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this episode, we're really excited to speak with Liz Sutton, an activist working with white people for Black lives in L.A. But before that, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So for this episode, I thought it would be useful to go back and discuss all of our five fundamental truths about racism or the FTRs that we detailed in our first couple of episodes. Good idea. Yeah, I think that we've been getting a lot of we're raising a lot of issues that are um, that that incorporate the FTRs uh, implicitly, but it we, we haven't. I think it would behoove us to go back and sort of dive into each one of them. What do you think about that? That's a good idea. To start, do you want me to just read through them quick? And yeah, then why don't we just remind them? people what five, they're, these five, they're, and again, these are, the, these are the truths about racism that April and I are operating um, within as we discuss all of these topics. So these things all sort of go without saying to us, but they might be a little bit shocking to hear for some people because um, we're just, there's no euphemisms and we're just pretty blunt about it. So yeah, let's go through those five and then we'll okay. take each one one by one, I think after that and sort of dive in and, and explain it for a couple minutes. Okay. Let me start. All right. So our five FTRs, fundamental truths about racism are as follows. Number one, all white people are inherently racist. Number two, being called racist shouldn't be considered a slur or a conversation ender. Number three, it's white people's responsibility to fix racism. Number four, when discussing race, it's white people's responsibility to listen. And number five, this all applies to the two of us, both me and Jonathan, by virtue of our half-whiteness. So those are our five fundamental truths about race. Okay, so I think that it, yeah, I mean, so to us, again, the, these are sort of just obvious observations, but I think they are worth diving into. So April, you know, how is it that, how is it that we can say, FTR number one, all white people are inherently racist? So our definition of racism is key here. Because I think that's where people differ. Yeah. Um, so our definition of racism is white people benefiting from institutional white supremacy and black people being harmed by it. All white people benefit from white supremacy and all black people are harmed by it. This makes white people inherently racist because just by birth, by being born white, you experience white, quote, privilege, white supremacy. If you do nothing in life, you, just by being white in America, are inherently racist. So it takes work and recognition and giving up that, quote, privilege to combat your racism. And on the flip side, Black people, just by being Black, are harmed by white supremacy because of the racism in America. 
So because of this, it's impossible as a race for Black people to be racist. So the people who say, you know, I'm a white person, I, how dare you say that I'm racist? You don't know anything about me. I um, have, uh, I married a Black man. I have Black children. Um, I have, all, most of my friends are Black. Like, this does not apply to every white person. How can you say that every white person, that's just painting with a broad brush. How can you say that every white person is racist? Um, I think it's just worth reminding people that we are not, just take a second, we are not operating from the definition that you have come to know for racism, which is basically being mean to someone because of their race. That is not right. what racism is. Um, that's being mean to someone because of their race. That's prejudice or discrimination or whatever you want to call it. Um, semantics actually are important here. Um, that is not racism because of racism involves this element of institutionalized power that backs the discrimination or backs the prejudice and gives it real teeth and lets it really be harmful um, and also insulate the person that's carrying it out from any sort of consequences meaningfully um, from an institutional standpoint. So that's how we can say it and know confidently that it applies to everyone, including our white mom, um, because it is not about you intending to be mean to someone. It's not about you intentionally discriminating against someone. Those are the easy um, racist characteristics. The insidious white supremacy that's built into our society is what makes white people racist, all white people racist, and how we can say it openly and obviously, because it's not a huge, it's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a shocking thing. It's just an observation of what, of who, is in power in our society and at whose expense. And I think it's important to note that being racist doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. It's not, it's more a reality, a fact of life rather than a definition of who you are at your core. It right. can be that too. But for our definition's sake, it's more of a general observation of how our country works right now. So you can be the best person in the world, the biggest heart, wouldn't harm a fly, definitely don't have bad feelings in your heart about Black people. But because of the way that America, the system works, and the fact that white people as a race hold all the power, that's what white supremacy is. And that's why all white people are racist. Yeah, I think that's, it's, yeah, there, we could go on, but it's it's one of those things where white people in this country literally invented race the way that we know it today. Um, and so it is, it's built in. It is just, it's, it's built into the way that we view the world. And again, as relates to our, um, our second FTR, which I think we can move to now, remind you uh, that our second FTR is that being called racist shouldn't be considered a slur or a, a conversation ender. That's the second FTR. So with all of what we just said about FTR number one in mind, it is implied, you know, pointing out that a white person is racist shouldn't be, shouldn't raise the hairs on their back. It shouldn't upset them to the point where um, they don't, they can no longer engage with the person who pointed it out. They should, it shouldn't, um, it can be upsetting because it's an upsetting topic, but it's not 
a slur. This is not someone pointing the finger and saying, this is not us pointing the finger at you and saying, racist, racist. It's, it is us saying, oh, yes, of course, that person benefits from white supremacy at the expense of black and brown people. So, of course, they're racist. Of course, that's not, that's not it's a huge... more, Yeah, it's more a state of being because of the way our country is set up. So I think it's something that white people can say, okay, yes. This is the this is the reality of America and many parts of the world. This is the reality of what, you know, the state I was born into. So, yes, okay, I recognize that. And now we move forward. It shouldn't be something that stops you. I'm racist. Oh, you know, now my life is over because of this. What no. should I, I can't even try. And that's a thing right. that you get a lot from people. Well, what, if I'm racist, then what can I even do? I shouldn't even do anything. And it's like, no, you're still, again— Going with the old definition of racism, which is I'm mean to people and I'm uh, actively— I treat black people bad. Right. So then if if there's no way I can choose, then what what am I even doing here? It's like, well, yes, of course, you are racist, but you can choose to minimize the harm that your racism and white supremacy is causing to other people by a variety of ways. That's the subject of this podcast. Um, And so, yeah, so that's FTR number two is— This shouldn't be, this is being identified as racist is the start of the conversation. It's not the, it's not the end of it. Um, And I think, yeah, the, the gut of the conversation is actually FTR number three, which is, it is white people's responsibility to fix racism. So after you look at yourself and say, okay, yes, I am white. I am racist. Now what? Now is the time to fix it. And it's, this is something that is really tough to grapple with because it's part of it is almost black people saying, Hey, we can't do this. If we could, racism wouldn't exist. I mean, that's only logical. If black people could end racism, it we would do it. That would we be would have by now because right. we all want to. Right. But it just goes to show that this, this other the other part of the definition is that institutionalized power that white people have in America. So because of that, only white people can fix it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. A, it's a matter of it's a matter of ability and capability. And I hate to say that because it sounds like we need black people need white people to come save us. Um, and it's so shitty that that has to be the sort of posture. But it because of the way that our system is framed and set up, our literal institutions, our government, our biz, our commerce, our business, our religions um, are all designed. White people are at the helm in terms of controlling the power. So in order for there to be equity for everyone, um, there, there has to be an agreement to change the way things are done. And the only people that are in a position to change the way that things are happening are white people. Um, because so John, what do you we say see that... this all the time? Look at any cause that white people put their mind to, that it gets changed, <laughs> you know, like not, not any, I'm exaggerating a bit, but, um, but it is, it is, that's the opinions that matter in our societies, unfortunately. Um, so sorry, what were you going to say? Well, what do you say, you know, we say that it's white people's responsibility to fix racism. What do you say when, you know, a white person tells a black person to, hey, you know, 
you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You got to take some responsibility, you know, for whatever your situation is in life. You can't expect people to just, you know, do things for you and, 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 you know, pick you up. You need to do it yourself. Yeah. So that, uh, that sort of, um, American, you know, meritocracy, meaning, you know, your merit is how you perform, how well you'll do in life. But if you're smart and hardworking, you'll make it far and make a lot of money. That is, a, is in my mind, a myth or at least an ideal. That's how the system should work. Um, if everything is equal, then yes, the harder the person someone works, then the farther they will go. Um, but everything isn't equal. So we're starting a race with a bunch of people have a head start and have been on stair and been using steroids, you know? And so we don't have mm-hmm. a way to compete with those people saying, yo, train harder, run faster, and you'll, you'll beat them. That's maybe, um, but it's not fair. It's still not a fair system. And so, um, there are people that say, yes, well, black people need to be, it's the, you know, it's the, um, it's the broken homes and the drug problems and the violence and black communities that are really holding black people down. It's not, it's not racism, you know, um, uh, folks that bring that forward have a lack, a, um, an honest and circumspect view of what causes all of those things. So what does cause crime in black communities? Is it just black people liking liking violence and wanting to be wanting to to shoot in their neighborhood? No, of course not. It's drug issues, it's poverty, it's education. It's all these things that we all know are also connected to racism or white supremacy. It's the fact that, you know, one out of every what eight black men in the country is under control of the correctional system. Um, so it, it is, don't say, don't, don't unleash a war, unleash a war on drugs that captures one in eight black men and then say, well, why aren't black men in the homes? You know, they need to be the ones pulling, right. pulling their sons up by their bootstraps. You know, don't, don't bankrupt schools in, uh, in black communities because of white flight and all the money that was taken away from those communities. And then when the schools are underperforming, say, well, the students just don't want to study hard enough. That's obviously why they're not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, no, it's all these things are connected to white supremacy and racism. So, um, you know, again, look, we could go on and on and on for an answer to that question, but that is a myth. You just work harder and you'll get better at things. You'll, you'll be, get your work your way out of this. Um, that is a, that's a myth. And, and any black person, any black, uh, professional who's gone to a bunch of college or worked a bunch and amassed a bunch of wealth will tell you that that doesn't get you out of this. That doesn't working hard, doesn't get you out of racism. Um, and so, you know, Oprah will tell you that, when she goes in, uh, goes to buy a handbag overseas, and people don't really know what she looks like, and she still gets followed around in the store, you know. To it's Oprah, like, to, it's on. Oprah. She's the richest woman on the planet, literally. Uh, and so, it, it, so you can't work your way out of something that is an unfair system by, by bootstrapping and and making sure you're eating your Wheaties every morning. Um, so yeah, so that's that. On to number four, which is that it's white people's responsibility to listen when talking about race. So when engaging in conversations about race, 
um, with black people um, or any person of color, white people's opinions inherently carry less weight than any person of color's opinion by nature of, you know, of race and what it is, white people can't experience racism. So when you're talking in conversations about race, you know, with, with other, with black people, as a white person, you just need to listen, 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 listen and learn, listen, listen and learn, listen to what, listen to the stories black people tell you that they experience, listen to, um, their, you know, their own lived experiences, listen to the things that, you know, they, the music that they tell you to listen to. So wait, so what books. do you mean when you say you can't, exp- a white person can't experience race? Well, it goes back to number one, racism is, is white people benefiting from white supremacy. So it, it just logically follows that white people can't experience racism. White people cannot be as a race harmed or feel negative effects of being white just by virtue of their race. That's not how from this an, country from works. an institutional standpoint, right? So this isn't this isn't someone walking down the street, a white person walking down the street in a black neighborhood and getting called cracker and being like, "Well, that person was mean to me because of my race." That's not what we're talking about. That's not. Of course, you can have bad things happen to you because of your race. That's not what we've established. That that's not necessarily what racism always is. Um, but yeah, the institutions in this country, the government, the laws. The power structure are set up in such a way that white people, as a race, benefit from that power, and black people are harmed by it. So white people can't and don't experience being harmed by those same institutions and the the same government and that same inherent power because they're on the receiving end of that power. So when you have someone, I hear a lot of the time, Especially, so I work at uh, in in the academic set. I work in the higher education setting, and so I'm I am talking about race a lot. But it's with really really smart people who are who are otherwise specialists in some other area, you know. Um, and so it's hard to tell someone who's really smart that they don't know anything about a certain topic. So, but I well, it's to, like yeah, it's like have you ever been to India, Jonathan. Right. So this is such a great example. I know where you're going with this. Go yeah. Ahead. Have you ever been to India? I've not. No. Okay. Well, I have a friend who's Indian from India. So if you and my friend engage in conversation about what life is like in India, what Indian people <laughs> are like, maybe what the culture of India is like, the climate, what holidays people in India celebrate, maybe. So who who's going to know more in this conversation, you or my friend who's from India? Right, right, yeah. And and on top of that, no matter how many books I read on India, no matter how much I study and I go get a PhD in India history, right? Like in everything <laughs> India, no mm-hmm. matter what, if your friend who's Indian from India walks into the room and it's up to me or your friend about who's the bigger expert on what it's like to be Indian. Your friend wins every time. Your friend right. is an expert. You're, and your friend you're, wins this. Right. And your opinion 
doesn't really matter. Right. It's sort because of irrelevant. You literally never, you've never been to India. You've never experienced and can never experience being Indian. It's the same with racism in America. Yeah, it is. It is. You are. And so the reason this relates back to FTR number four is the, the when you're engaging in, the conversa- in conversations or work in this anti-racist allyship arena, and there are black people there to learn from who are willing to speak about this and tell you what the issues are and tell you how best to confront them, it's, it would be dumb not to listen. It would be dumb not to listen and learn because black people are the people who are experiencing the racism. Black men are three to five times more likely to get our asses beat by the police, right? And Or be killed by the police unarmed, right? The, we're mm-hmm. the ones who are experiencing that. And so for a white guy who has studied the police and studied um, Black Lives Matter movement and where it came from and has done a bunch of work on how to um, best get justice in the, within law enforcement, he, he can talk to me, a black man who gets stopped by the police all the time and whose career was almost ruined by law enforcement. Uh, he can talk to me about law enforcement and how to fix things until he's blue in the face, but he's never going to be able to tell me, oh, well, I know how this works. I have experienced how this works, and I know from my experience how to fix it. He'll never be able to tell me that. And so mm-hmm. that's why listening is so key when it comes to um to these conversations and, and, you know, our interview for later in this episode is with, um, an activist for an organization called white people for black lives. And that's something that, and that was a, it's a, a group that's featured in this Chelsea Handler documentary. And they're just this prominent group of white activists who are working in the race space. And they are, um, that's one of the big things they always say is like, shut the hell up. Listen to what black lives matter is telling us because they're, they're the reason we started this organization, because we were white people getting in the way at Black Lives Matter, you know? Mm, yep. um, and so it's, you know, her story is really interesting. And so we'll, I'm excited to talk to her about that. But this is, it's why it's one of our fundamental truths about racism, because it's so key. It can, you can be so smart and so pragmatic and so down for the cause and so willing to help. But you can, as a white person, and but you can be taking up too much space. You can be in a conversation with black and brown people who have experienced racism every day, and you can be taking up too much space in the room and not listening and learning from them because they're doing you a favor by taking the time to go to relive the traumas that they're going through to help you understand what it's like to be a black or brown person in this country that experiences racism the way that a white person can't. Sorry, end mm-hmm. of rant. Whew. So that leads us to the last FTR, which is, this, it's my turn, right? Mm-hmm. I can't, be, I can't, I got confused with my rant. Um, <laughs> the last FTR is that all of these things that we're talking about apply to me in April as well. Um, yep. Our mom is white. We are half white. Um, we get all sorts of treatment that is different because of the shade of our blackness um, than people who have two black parents um, and then people who have different backgrounds than we do. And so we apply all of this to ourselves as well. April and I are racist. April, April. Yes. You're racist. I know. I know. You I are. know. Okay. I Just am. Let's work on it. You know, right. Like, and that is, that's what, 
that's what all of this is for. And that's why we started this podcast. And so um, we want to just remember that's why we wanted to sort of make this a this our last fundamental truth is our sort of reminder to ourselves that like as much as we're talking, this is all stuff we're taking to heart as well. Um, And so. Yeah, I just think it was good for us to go over those, right? I feel like this yeah, is I do good... too. It's a good reminder for everyone yeah, because yeah. we tend sort of take these things for granted. But when you know we casually bring up you know an FTR randomly in conversation, but then you know you forget that this is these are these are big statements for people, right? And yeah. it's worth worth reviewing. Yeah, totally. Cool. Um, okay, let's keep going. Up next, we're excited for our interview with Liz Sutton of White People for Black Lives. So, Liz Sutton, thanks so much for being with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me on here. So, uh, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while because, uh, as I've mentioned to you a couple times, you're one of the uh, one of the the anti-racist allies, white anti-racist allies in my life that um, is. I feel like you're doing the absolute most you can be doing, and I'm always just so impressed by all the stuff you're getting done and all the organizations you're a part of. And so I wanted to have you on to give people a flavor of sort of everything that's out there, but specifically to talk about um, White People for Black Lives, which is this organization that um, that you're a part of that was just recently featured in uh, the Chelsea Handler documentary that came out. So um, with all that being said, um, can you give us, I guess, a little bit of info about your sort of personal background and what brought you to, as a white woman, to um, racial racial activism and advocacy? Sure. Um, so really, there are, there are a lot of factors that led me to where I am. But I think that the two big pieces are my first experience with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and then also the experience of the life and death of my brother, Chris. So I found my way to white people for black lives by way of a Black Lives Matter LA meeting that completely changed my life. Um, So in July of 2016, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were murdered by the police one day apart um, in July. And I I felt really overcome by the horror of this. And I I felt this like real need to do something. And I didn't really know what that was. Um, but I looked up the next BLMLA meeting and over a thousand people showed up. It was massive. Um, and basically the, the leadership of BLMLA is so good and they harnessed this momentum and all of these people and took to the streets and it was this giant march through LA and it was incredible and so powerful and so moving but it also left me with a lot of questions about the role of white people in racial justice work um you know like should should white people chant hands up, don't shoot when the group is chanting? Should white people chant? I can't breathe. Like, is that what just, just a lot of like, what should I be doing in this moment? Um, and so I talked with a friend of mine about it and they suggested that I check out white people for black lives. And so I looked up the next general meeting and I went to it and I've only missed a couple of them since then, really. And so now I'm really deeply involved in the leadership there. And that also led me to representing white people for black lives on the 
executive team of Justice LA, which is around um, ending jail expansion and reimagining how we use money that would have been going to jails. Wow. So you're so you're the representative from white people for black lives in that larger coalition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are just my so, two primary spaces. And just so people know, like this is like a lot of activism talk. So coalitions meaning a group of a bunch of smaller um, organizations that all have a similar goal that sort of pool their leadership and resources and work together to sort of, um, you were mentioning this is that particular um, Justice LA is about reforming uh, prisons. Um, is that right? But when I say, when you say coalition, is that what you're, what you're referring to? Yes, totally. And okay. yes, please catch me when I get jargony. I no, no, no. I just want to no, make no. sure that I have <laughs> No, I appreciate that. So can you explain a little bit about what white people for black lives that your team does on like a daily basis and then sort of more macro, what are your, what are your goals? What are you trying to do both short-term and and long-term in LA? So white people for black lives is a, we're a collective of white anti-racist people. Um, and so we're the activist arm of a larger group in LA called Aware LA, which stands for Alliance Anti-Racist Everywhere. And then we operate within a national network called Showing Up for Racial Justice, which I may refer to as SURGE, but I wanted to spell out the acronym here. Um, and so it's rooted in acting in alliance with Black Lives Matter LA, Movement for Black Lives, and then other partners. Um Short-term goals, we're really thinking about how we structure ourselves to be able to absorb as many white people as possible into meaningful anti-racist action that goes beyond the really necessary personal reflection piece, but actually moves into action and working in solidarity with organizations that are led by black and brown folks in order to change the oppressive institutions and systems. I want to stop you for a second. So when you say working in solidarity with Black Lives Matter or organizations run by black and brown folks. What do you what does that mean that that your organization is working in solidarity with them? We work very directly with BLM LA. Um, this relationship started basically when we were asked as, you know, there was this group of white folks who wanted to be involved in this and we took our cues from uh, the leadership in Black Lives Matter, and it started as, like, actually using our bodies, like, when there were actions where the police would be involved, we were asked to come out. This is actually, I say we, but this is before, the the very origin is before I was involved by a couple of years. Um, but we were asked to come out and actually, like, be a physical barrier with our bodies to protect BLMLA folks from the police. Um, and so that was kind of the origin of it. And then it's really evolved over time. Um, our leadership is in like near constant leadership with the BLM, with BLM LA. Um, and like, we just take our lead from them in some of the ways we function, what we endorse, how we show up at actions. Um, like it's, it looks it can look different all the time, but it's very it's a very close and trusting relationship that we took years to develop. And by wow. and by showing up in ways that that were that we built that trust. I I want to back up for a second. Speaking of trust here. So 
Liz, you've expressed some apprehension and um, nervousness about being on our podcast because um, you've told me about you don't know you don't want to be taking up too much space. You don't want to be um, acting out of turn or saying something that is um, not appropriate for a white person to say in this context. Um, you've articulated it better than I just did, but can you talk a little bit about that, about someone, a, a white woman asking to be interviewed in our podcast, um, your concerns about, about that, that you were sort of expressing to me before you came on, because I think it's really important for our listeners to hear that, um, because it relates to what it relates to the work that you do and sort of every aspect uh, of the work that you do, this sort of concern that you're not stepping on toes or being, um, you know, taking over. So I talk a lot with people about being like a right sized white person. And I think really all the time, um, because outside of white people for black lives, I am often one of only a few white people in other spaces that I'm in. Um, and so I'm, I'm really thinking about, you know, where to begin this. <laughs> so I think that, that what white people take up too much space in the world, spoiler alert. And uh, I think when when someone starts to really recognize that and like dig into their identity as a white person and start to develop an identity as a white anti-racist person, the reaction to realizing how much space we've taken up forever is to go so small and silent that we don't do anything. And that we're not useful. And so I think that if there, we do need to have some amount of voice as white anti-racist people in order to disrupt racism and do what we're trying to do. But we need to figure out how we need to be thinking constantly in every space we're in about how much space to take up um, and how and how to be right sized. And so I think that like also because I'm someone who I tend to just like be kind of in the trenches doing the work and also doing a lot of like quiet behind the scenes work. And that's my, that's my happy place is a little bit uh, more hidden than doing something that feels more public like this is like, Ooh, like, do you need to hear more white people talk? I don't know. Uh, but also I recognize, and you and I have spoken about this, that this is, this is a way to use my voice as a white person too. Uh, let other people know what possibilities there are and how they could be engaging. So, and I wonder, I wonder if that sort of, sort of on the other end, in you know, white people taking up or not taking up space, how you make that appealing to other white people to entice them to sort of join the fight as well. And, and I feel like a part of that, at least for Surge, is the, the idea of calling people in as opposed to calling them out. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, why would, <laughs> why, would your average, why would your average white person want to do what you're doing? I mean, that's a hard question. That's what we're trying to figure out, right? Because we have to, we, <laughs> white people for black lives, we... Um, trying to engage 3.5% of the population of white people. Um, I mean, really, I think it often starts with like a, a 
crisis of conscience somehow. Like people in whatever way they do realizing that like racism is real and they need to, and that they are participating in it by being a white person who's not actively working against it. And so, yeah, the calling in and not out is really about like, when someone says something fucked up and you and and recognizing that like guilting or shaming them is not the way to it's not an effective way to get people involved, but to like take that moment and using it as a learning moment. You're not um, just based on my interactions with with sort of advocating for these issues to white people. You know, you're not looking for any. Any old white person to join a group like white people for black lives, right? Like you have a level of sort of racial competency that you have to, that someone has to have before they can even be speaking your language, right? Like you're not, or how do you approach that? Is it any, um, if you see some, you know, racist thing happening, being carried out by a white person, you're going to talk to that white person, but you're not convincing someone like that to join your organization. So how do you, how do you gauge which types of white folks you're seeking out and who you're sort of, um, who you're, yeah, choosing to sort of bring into this group and recruit to this group. You talk to me all the time about, you know, some, you mentioned, you met someone that like, you're like, Oh, I have to make a note to reach out to that person again, because I want to talk to them about the activism work that I'm doing. How do you decide who you're going to do that with? So, I want to dispel the myth that you have to have any kind of analysis to join because I think that would make people not want to join. Oh, and, good. Okay. Uh, we we train them up. We take <laughs> we're we're recruiting what we call the low hanging fruit. So <laughs> no, it's the yeah, I'm not going to the the racist trolls that comment on your Instagram like I'm not going to be like you should come to a meeting because I don't because it's, I, I don't have, it's not a good use of our energy to try to engage people who are like totally racist, not going to change. Like, I'm just not, uh, they're not the people who we want to put energy into because there are so many people that need to be engaged still who kind of like, they get that something's wrong and they're like sort of these like regular average white liberal people who like mm -hmm. think they're not racist. The ones who think they're not racist, those are the ones we want. And then right. we explain to them that they are racist and give them the analysis on it. But those, those are the people who actually like we can change. And there's still such a massive group of that, of that like population that we're not really working at this point to try to engage actively racist people because we want to make it active, the, the sort of middle ground people. I choose people who seem like they'd be willing. Do you, speaking of those true racists who probably aren't going to change, do you see them as the biggest obstacle to making, you know, true progress toward racial equity? Or are they sort of just like outliers who we can ignore and there's another bigger issue? I mean, I... I think the way that I've, I like frame the idea of the obstacle in terms of people is that they're, and it is definitely all of those like very racist people fall in line with that. But I think there are also even like less explicitly racist who are still this, but it's, it's, it's white people who are socialized to align with the wealthy elite and think that, uh, 
And they, and we like need those people to shift toward an understanding that everyone has a stake in disrupting white supremacy and white dominance, and that that will allow for a more equitable society for everyone. And I don't think that that is even just the like outwardly racist people. I think that is a lot of white people. And then I think the other major obstacle is just the, the power structures. I mean, the people who are doing the work toward racial equity do not have the time and the funding that matches the, the people in power. Um, and so the people who are doing the on the ground work are also often like overwhelmed with survival, overwhelmed with feelings of demoralization so that there's not as much time and energy to participate in organizing as the people who have, you know, somebody who can go run an election for a billion dollars. Yeah. You know, it's just, um, so I think those, the, the power structures and the, the white people who are aligning with the elite seem mm. to be the biggest obstacles. So let's, let's take a step back and, and I want you to, I want to give you some time to talk again about, um, white people for black lives, their, their goals. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned, you know, some of these big obstacles. So, so what is, what's the overall, what are the aims for, for this group? What are you trying to do overall? And you can break that down as much as you, or as little as you would like. So the, the long-term goal, I talked a little bit about the, the short-term, but the long-term is about engaging 3.5% of white people across the country. Um, people who studied effective social movements have found that that is the number that it takes to tip the balance and to create change in material conditions. And so that is the long-term. Um, and really, we do it by interrupting racism in like every, everywhere that we see it. So that's when we see it. Um, we, we talk about the tiers as, uh, intrapersonal, like internal, um, Mm -hmm. interpersonal, institutional, and then cultural. And we are disrupting it everywhere. We see it in all of those levels. It's interesting because, you know, you're obviously someone who's doing, and is a part of group who is doing a lot, a lot, a lot of work to, you know, make progress toward equity, racial equity. And on the flip side, on our podcast, fairly regularly, we call all white people racist. Mm -hmm. As someone who is so clearly acting against that, how does that make you feel? What, what, What do you think, what comes to mind when we say that about white people? And that includes you and all the people who are a part of, you know, white people for black lives and who are doing this great work. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel so many things when you say that. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's true. Um, and I feel, I mean, I feel angry and heartbroken and I feel helpless and disappointed. Um, I used to feel guilty, but I don't now because I don't think that guilt actually keeps anybody moving. Um, but mostly I feel angry. And, and what's your response? Is it like a, is it almost a motivator? Oh yeah. I mean, so we, we are all, white people are all raised in a, all, all people, but we are, so we're all raised in a culture of white supremacy and white people just often can't see that at all. 
Um, it's the air we breathe and we are trained from birth not to see it. I'm from New England and it's like the land of the, the colorblind. Like they think they're not racist because of like the civil war, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) like, I just don't, but so, but so white supremacy there is, uh, like it takes so many forms. Right. But I think really some of the most dangerous are the ways that it is silent and insidious and really like woven in. And this is the stuff that white people can't see and ways that we are conditioned. Um, and as the result of this conditioning, all white people are racist. It's just an objective fact. And so I, I do recognize that it's emotionally loaded to say that. And like, that's good. Like it should be emotionally loaded. But also I want to urge white people who hear that and feel themselves kind of prickle at it to take a step back from that and rather than jump to defensiveness, if that's the route they would take, to really take time to consider what I'm saying and not, like, I'm not saying this to spread guilt or shame, um, but as you said, April, for me, it is like a fuel. It, it activated me. It keeps me moving. And I think that it that we can use this to, we can use all of these feelings to be active and that this is the way, like, this is the way forward for our collective humanity to be doing this work. So what, so, you know, you have this sort of, what I view as sort of a intense laser-like focus on, on fixing these issues where most people, you know, you make it a part of your nine to five job, which is a totally different career. And you make it a part of every conversation you talk about. And so, um, you're someone that, that is really committed to this, but what, what would you say that the white people generally, what is white people's role in dismantling white supremacy? So, you know, Ideally, everyone would do as much as you and the people in White People for Black Lives are doing or more. Um, but the, these sort of average folks, um, what's their role? How do they – what can we say as a sort of blanket rule for white folks? This is what you should be doing. If all you – if everyone did this, this problem would be moved on its way to being solved. So it's really about – working with impacted communities to challenge racism in all its forms, the ones that I, that I mentioned earlier, the different right. levels. Um, and then it start like, so it starts with white people have to get grounded in what white supremacy means and what it looks like. And so educating ourselves about the history and the foundation of white supremacy in this country, um, how we have benefited from a system of white dominance, how it impacts our lived experiences and the experiences of people of color, um, and then modifying our behavior to show up in multiracial spaces in healthy ways, in that right-sized way. Um, and then being part of multiracial organizing efforts that push back against the system. Um, and then building alternative solutions, building out different ways of being that that really... Um, are the world we're imagining. So hmm. alternatives to 911, alternatives to incarceration, um, and then building out spaces that fight white supremacy culture in the various groups that we're a part of and have access to. Man, so that, I feel like it, you know, 
uh, each one of those things that you listed, we could have a whole podcast series on each one of those. Uh, of those <laughs> Good. Uh, you're naming all these like heavy hitter, like, you know, uh, alternatives to 911 is such a huge issue. Um, I want to give you, mm-hmm. as we're sort of wrapping up here, I want to give you another sort of opportunity to just talk about to sort of plug white people for black lives um where can they sort of find information on it what are they what types of white people are you looking for if are we have a good amount of listeners in la to this podcast that are all interested in this work this is your sort of prime audience i would imagine um if you're sort of trying to recruit well-meaning white folks so go ahead and, and tell us tell us where we can find more info about white people for black lives Yeah, we would like all well-intentioned white people, every one of them. And, okay, so there are a few different ways. So if you are in L.A., because I know that your listeners are not just L.A., so I want to also put stuff out more nationally, you can email us, whitepeopleforblacklives at gmail.com, and that's the number four. And if you'd like, you can ask for me specifically, and if you have any questions you want to follow up on, um, and it can get forwarded to me from there. You can go to our website, which is awarela.org, and check out our resources. And then you can also go to, so for the more national, for people who aren't in LA, you can go to the Surge National website to find a local chapter, and that's showforracialjustice.org. And then um, I'd also like to encourage people to go to blacklivesmatter.com, donate your money, find a local chapter, go to a meeting, and just listen, um, see what's going on there. Uh, check out the movement for black lives. If you Google movement for black lives, you'll find it. You should read the platform. You should also donate there. Um, and then also just Googling what's going on in your area. Who's working on racial equity? Who's working to end mass incarceration? Who's fighting police brutality? Who's working to get police out of schools or working on a plan for reparations? Like there are a lot of different pieces and a lot of ways to engage Um, and while it can be challenging and uncomfortable to be white people figuring out how to be in those spaces, it's really crucial to lean into that tension and discomfort and do the work in order to move forward. Um, and there are white people who have paved the way and figured out ways that we can do this responsibly and with accountability. So Liz Sutton, thank you very much for being Uh on Black Hand. Thank you for having me. What an honor. And now it's time for this episode's action item. So for this episode's action item, it's really simple. This was sort of inspired by Black History Month because I was thinking of all the ways that Black folks have contributed to the culture, American culture. Um, This action item is just think of your three favorite music genres and then do research on on their origins and what race of people, what group of people introduced and came up with uh, that music genre or where it came from in terms of its historical origins, if that makes sense. And I bet you'd be surprised. That's good, John. Yeah, I feel like it's a, I feel like people will be surprised at how many things are traced back to, to Black folks in this country. This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com.
You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.